That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I can clearly see my career trajectory taking me towards, you know, being the head of communications or marketing at a non-profit organization. Mm. And I would love that. That would be an amazing career. Um, but I think ambitiously, I, I actually do want to be a CEO of a non-profit organization. I love strategic thinking and, and working with others. And I'm actually really good at handling stress, um, believe it or not. Great to be back with you here, as always. I want to start by expressing my gratitude for our recent promotional package clients who have really helped us fast-track the move to podcast sustainability. Our promotional packages enable us to amplify support for all the amazing purpose-driven work happening out there and gives you the chance to reach our global listener audience comprising over 10,000 episode listeners per month as well as our growing social media community. This is the chance to connect with our wonderful socially conscious audience, of whom 76% are 25 to 44, and around 74% are also senior professionals in their field. We have just a few spots remaining for the year, and you can learn more about this time-limited opportunity and get in touch in the show notes. If you want to be more humans in purpose every week, now is a great time to become a member, with 30% off our monthly and annual memberships happening until the end of winter. With membership, you'll get every episode ad-free, a bonus audio note on each guest, a full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from each episode and more. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more and take up this great offer. We're proud to be sponsored by the terrific folk at Neon Treehouse. They are a full-service digital agency, and you can be sure they'll have the right solution for any and all of your digital needs. Check out our show notes to learn more. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Sarah Ramantanis to the podcast. Sarah is heavily involved in the world of philanthropy and is a marketing and communications professional by trade. As a fan of the podcast and fellow storyteller, Sarah reached out wanting to appear on the show and I really liked her confident approach, fresh perspectives and great experience and wisdom for a 22-year-old. Sarah has done a great deal in her time on the planet and is involved in Nexus, the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition, previously Philanthropy Australia and now the General Sir John Monash Foundation. It's impossible for us to cover everything Sarah is doing, but I really enjoyed this conversation, which opened me up to a range of unique youth insights and perspectives on a range of issues. Hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sarah as much as I did. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined on this frosty but not too cold morning by Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could come on. It's just um, fantastic to meet you. I'm really happy you're here. I'm sorry about the traffic this morning from Williamstown. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. We we Westies just you know we happen to just deal with it. Yeah, West is best. Uh, not 
for traffic, but everything else, it's not too, it's not too shabby. <laughs> Excellent. I think I recall hearing from some Westies, West is the best, throw out the rest or something. And that, yeah, yeah. It seems like not a very adult expression. Yeah, but. we're also not clearly good with our rhymes because, <laughs> yeah, I just don't feel like that's – but it's all right. <laughs> I won't uh, paint you with that tarred brush. But um, look, welcome. Um, I'm really interested to hear everything about you because you're doing so many exciting, interesting things. And I think you bring a really unique um, youth perspective, a diverse youth perspective. But maybe let's start to hear a little bit just about your story. Um, you know, your your story is quite short because you're, <laughs> you're a young woman. Um, but we'd love to hear um, a bit about your journey so far and, you know, maybe school, graduation, what you were thinking um, and your pathway to where we are today? So as a student, I studied media and communications. And after that, um, I wasn't really too sure what I wanted to do, but I loved people and I loved talking about things that had meaning. Um, And, you know, one of the first things I did was uh, to figure myself out was I created um, a magazine, so a storytelling platform that shares stories of people trying to make a difference. And from there, I was like, I really think I belong in the sort of non-for-profit sector so I was looking at different roles there and um, I started volunteering with World Vision Australia when I was 20 years old um, and for everyone that worked there at that time. So sorry I bothered you so much because I was such, I was really just like trying to learn everything and I would come in every day and like I just wanted all this experience about sort of how this works um, from a comms and marketing perspective. So after I did that, um, I was still applying for jobs and I ended up at Philanthropy Australia. So that was my first sort of non-for-profit role. It's pretty awesome, first not-for-profit role. Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea how to really pronounce philanthropy at the time. It's still hard to pronounce it. <laughs> 38 years old, I find it very challenging. It's one of the harder words, especially in the morning when you're a bit tongue-tied yeah. <laughs> or um, dry throat, philanthropy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Um, but I learned so much there and I've been there for just finishing up over two and a half years now. Um, but that was sort of, that was my starting point. So did you have a bit of time with um, Sarah in the chair? I did. Oh, yeah, she's a fantastic human, Sarah, yeah. if you're listening. Um, yeah, she, I learned a lot Shout from her to Sarah. too. I'm not sure if she still listens, but she has been on the pod before and um big fan. Oh, yeah. No, she um, well, was definitely a great mentor for me even to this day. And you For know, our listeners, we're talking about Sarah Davies, who's now at Alana and Madeline, who was at Philanthropy Australia as CEO. Yeah, she, um, <laughs> yeah, she was definitely vital at that time. Um, and she was basically her last year was in 2020 when everyone was trying to pivot for the pandemic. So she really... Um, held us strong. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the amount that she's done for the the sector overall is just extraordinary. So shout out to Sarah, if you are listening or not, uh, we are fans. <laughs> uh, but you would like you to have um, Jack there as more recently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, his uh, strategic direction, it's, it's quite different, but it also takes like such a pivotal turn for our, you know, peak body stance, um, which a lot of our members have, you know, wanted to see from us. So it's been really good to have that like government with relation relationship with government much stronger, um, adapting our strategy to double, um, you know, philanthropic giving by 2030. Yeah, that's exciting. And that, that was um, – what came first, the horse or the cart there? Because I heard Andrew Lee talking about that. Was that his policy announcement after a bit of conversation or was that kind of separate and independent? Um, I think that was se- – uh I don't actually know. Um, I, doesn't I, really matter, really, but um, it's just inter- interesting that, to hear you say that that's PA stance because it's the same as um, Andrew Lee's, which is great. He, he's working with us to do that. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, I think yeah. what must have happened is, yeah, that relationship is is sort of our goal and he's definitely leading us there. 
terrific person as well, another uh, podcast alumnus. We, we just we might as well just rattle off every single person you know who I know who's been on the podcast. <laughs> Let's not do that. Um, but at Philanthropy Australia, so you're doing marketing and comms um, there and yeah. um, you have just moved on to a, a new role, which is quite exciting. Yeah, so I'll be finishing up at Philanthropy um, next week and I'll be starting as a marketing comms manager at the John Monash Foundation. Um, so for people that don't know who John Monash is, um, he is the person that Monash University is named after and his foundation provides um, scholarships for postgraduate students to study abroad. Um, you know, one of the most uh, best opportunities that you can really get as a postgrad. Um, I would love to do it myself, honestly, um, if my postgrad marks were any good. But um, <laughs> it might be a kind of conflict of interest at out. Oh, totally, absolutely, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, that'd give me like a discount on the scholarship. But no, um, it's uh, I really believe in sort of youth empowerment um, and philanthropy together, and I I love that. I think Josh, John Monash is that. Yeah, John Monash is a really powerful symbol. Um, you know, being Jewish as well, particularly his legacy is so important for the space and um, so many of my peers and myself went to Monash. So it's incredible to have like somebody like that with a foundation as well. Is it a new foundation or it's been around a long time? It's been around a long time. Sure. Yeah. And it's part of the university. Does it sit in Monash or it's separate? It's separate. Sure. Um, I think everything that's named after John Monash um, is separate. Yep. He's got a freeway. He's know. got everything. He's yeah, got like yeah. a bridge crossing in Elstonwick. It's very <laughs> – he's got heaps of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There should be a catalogue of John Monash, like where is all the John Monash oh, stuff. Yeah. That would be good mm. for all of us John Monash lovers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you, I mean, two things, why media and comms, first of all, and also why philanthropy and the not-for-profit sector? Great question. Media and communications because I love, and you know what you do, Mike, meeting different people and hearing different stories with purpose, um, which is why this podcast is good. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I thought that, you know, media and communications would definitely be the industry for me. Um, I've always been sort of good with people and good with words, um, and non-for-profit because I want those words and people that I'm talking to um, to be meaningful and to have some sort of impact because it can, yeah, it wasn't as fulfilling doing things that didn't really have much of a, you know, sense of community or giving back or making a difference to it. And when I found non-for-profit, I was like, oh, my goodness, like these people need to have their voices heard and their stories shared. You're doing all these amazing things. Like people need to know about this and people need to join you. What was your first exposure point where you sort of found, like you felt that connection? I was 19, um, so I'm half Greek and half Sri Lankan and my parents took me to Sri Lanka and we got to visit our sponsor child over there um, through World Vision Australia on the ground and I've never experienced anything like that. I had no idea that, you know, that's what they live like, that's how nice they are, that's how much support they get from us donating such a bare minimum amount of money and I just thought like, I've got, this is just what I should be doing with myself. I want to be back here. I want to meet her. I want to talk to her and just see her community grow. So from there, I was like, you know, I really believe in what non-for-profits do because they are doing something really amazing. It's incredible. And um, so being attracted to that sector then, um, I mean, obviously that you've got the whole for-purpose sector, philanthropy, you know, can be seen as part of that or maybe a little bit to the left or right. Um, So why philanthropy? Sometimes when you work at non-for-profits, um, the stories are quite disheartening and you do take it home with you. Like all these bad things are happening, this tragedy, etc. Philanthropy sort of flips the switch on that because it's all these people that can do something that are. And there's so many different ways to do it. 
And that's what I like to hear about. And that's what I would like to be. I would love everyone can achieve philanthropy. It's not just these, you know, multimillionaires. Like giving back is achieving philanthropy. Can young people achieve philanthropy? Young people can achieve philanthropy. How can they do that? They can, you know, just basically help other people, donate in some sort of way, volunteer their time, anything that's giving back to the community or a cause I recognise as philanthropy. So you don't have to give hundreds of dollars a week, a month or a year. Um, also important to think about how you choose deliberately to spend your time. Yeah. Time is money in a way. Yep. And, I mean, time is in a way more can be more valuable than money. So your choice to be in the space um, across not-for-profits and philanthropy organisations is really a strong philanthropic commitment yourself that you're making. Mm, I'd like to think so, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. What are your friends like? Do they think th- about the same things that you do? Do you talk about impact and sort of, you know, higher purpose and that kind of thing? Uh, well, I mean, some of my friends, I still try to explain what philanthropy is, but I think outside- Can I pronounce of, it? Um, they're learning. They're all learning. Um, but they, I think they can see it in me. I think they get exactly why I'm like this. Um, I love helping people and I love talking to people and I just like making other people feel good. Um, and I actually have been told by people, like, I come across as very philanthropic. And that was actually before I worked at Philanthropy Australia. So I think they get why I'm like this, but they're not. They don't, you know, that philanthropy is a big beast of a thing. Um, charity is a whole other thing in itself. And, you know, to some people to describe the difference between the two is very complicated. But at the end of the day... It's just about giving. Do you find the spectrum confusing when, when you're trying to talk to people about the differences between startup, social enterprise, not for profits, philanthropy, for purpose, for Absolutely. profit, profit for purpose? <laughs> if people, <Be> cool. <laughs> I'll if, stop now. <laughs> if people in the sector don't see that, um, it is. But I think at the end of the day, once you find your niche, it, it feels a lot more like, oh, I understand why um, this is sort of that area. And yeah, like I said, it's a big beast of a thing, but it, that's why it's so much fun working here because you get to learn all about the differences and you can jump from one to another throughout your career. So have you made friends and professional networks of people like yourself around the same age? Um, or did you find that kind of naturally, um, like, I'm just curious about what other young people are doing? and why they're doing it. They're doing incredible things. So I got exposed to the youth sector in 2020. I became the chief communications officer at UN Youth Australia. Um, So if people don't know, it's the United Nations Youth Australia um, and it's a non-for-profit youth-led organisation. And this was incredible, this experience, because I just met like thousands of different young people, so ambitiously driven Mm. uh, uh, and wanting to make a difference. Um, And they all kept me very busy during COVID, so thank you very much. Um, (laughs) And so from there, I just sort of realised like, because before I joined that organisation, I was like, is there anybody out there? Like me, like with the same passion, Did same drive. Did you put up the, um, the bat signal and just sort of see if anyone else came Yeah, I, exactly. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I actually got the role um, for that on my birthday when wow. I turned 22. So um, Good present. Yeah, I think definitely the universe is doing something there. But I, um, when, when I joined that organisation, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's so many people like me um, now. And I just sort of tapped into that and then explored sort of the youth space um, because even though they're not all necessarily with a comms lens, I think that they're all on the same goal that I am and that's to make the future, like create change for the future essentially and that's what the youth sector is doing. They're all about future priorities, future focused um, because that's at the end of the day what we're all going towards. Why do you think young people have the ability to be very future focused but older people don't and political cycles are short, you know, budget cycles? 
Mm, that's a really good question. I think it's because young people stereotypically they don't have they're not set in their ways. They want to create maybe they're not they they, they want to create new ways that work for them in this new society. Where else I find that maybe from a political lens, the way that things have always worked and proven to be successful perhaps take a lot more negotiation to change or else young people don't really see the need for that negotiation. What is your level of radicalism? Are you a person who thinks the system is broken? No, I'm actually not. I understand why there's so many youth advocates that do think that, but I always look back and think, well, I live in Australia, I live in Melbourne, and I've had all these different opportunities because I put it out there and tried to make it happen. Like I didn't come from a, you know, my family's amazing, but I didn't come from like giving everything to me on a platter. And I've found that, you know, if you do the right thing and you're working hard, it is a society that can work for you as a young person. That's just been my experience. And I think that we shouldn't be blaming things. Like I'm not very problem focused. I'm more solution orientated. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm, So when you are, I don't feel like there's ever a need to blame someone. Although I do think that there's, you know, hiccups and we're trying to move forward. But I think it's just something that you just have to continue to work at. Yeah, yeah. It's a certainly a place where you can make the most of it. But I, I think, you know, we get very caught up in like sort of um, some of the challenges of um, merit as well and sort of do we live in a true meritocracy? I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think that um, are you purely rewarded um, based on what you can do or are there other things that we need to think about? Like, you know, being a, a young woman um, with, with a um, diverse background, have you faced challenges or have you found um, things to be inclusive enough, you know, and fitting for you? I've found them to be inclusive enough, but I think when you find things that they do have a barrier, definitely have a voice about it because there shouldn't be things nowadays where you're still constrained based off, you know, disabilities or where you come from or anything like that, quite frankly. But I have found it is getting more and more inclusive and I personally haven't had any struggle. I actually think that, um, they like the representation of diversity for the things that I'm doing. Like, oh, you know. Oh, yeah. So I've just been lucky in that sense. But if you are, you know, facing those challenges, I definitely don't think you should just sit behind your keyboard. Like definitely let somebody know that that's happening. What would you do if you are facing those challenges? I would go to the source, you know, um, of that organisation and then take it further and just make sure that my voice was heard. And even if I didn't create change, um, I did to the best of my ability and, you know, word of mouth, we always learn in marketing is one of the, one of the most strategic tactics. Because if a friend tells you something is good or bad, you're going to believe that more than, you know, it's, anything else. It's such a good point. And, um, you just mentioned that you're about to do psychology as part of your postgrad study. I don't think you need to. Once, <laughs> once you already know that insight, you're pretty much set. If someone tells me something who I trust, um, I don't need to meet the person. I can rely on that recommendation that I should trust that person, right? Exactly. That's the whole, is that some of the thinking behind word of mouth kind of logic? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, trust is key and loyalty is key. And once you, blacklist an organization or an experience, um, it's going to be very hard to like stop that trickle effect. And there's always going to be people that try to look past that and, and whatever. But if there's been sort of that backlash from an inclusive perspective, I know a lot of young people will not let that fly. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think that um, because your generation has kind of grown up with a lot more media and social media, different forms of media, whereas when I grew up, there was the radio and the paper and, you know, sort of pre-Facebook and all that stuff. Do you think that, um, you know, how do you cope with all that information and does that sort of affect 
tr- trust and how you think about trusting relationships? Like, is it still, are you still a very relational person or do you think a lot about what is someone doing on Instagram? What, what am I hearing online? You know, what's in the print or media? Mm. Yeah. I mean, social media nowadays, it definitely isn't the most positive place to be. And especially working in media and comms, you do have to always be on it. But one of the things I've learned working in the space is a few things that everybody should know. One, never put something online that you're not proud of. So I always look at the things that I'm doing or, you know, my friends are doing and I'm like, I'm proud of this. And I don't think a lot of people do that, Mm. um, which I think in the long run is not going to work out so great for them. And secondly, nothing online most of the time is real. So just take everything with a grain of salt, especially news, and try to look at news that you're looking for and go for more than one source. Mm. Don't just read one news article or watch, you know, a two-minute news segment. Um, Go and read more into it because, you know, they might be wrong. Just because it's online or on TV doesn't mean it's correct a lot of the time. Um, So making sure that you sort of, you know, delve into it and if you want to learn more about something – And you don't always need to know everything about everything. You can't. There's so much news and so many issues that we're all looking at at the moment. And I think it's just you need to understand what resonates with you and what would benefit your life learning more about. And the rest of it just is noise some of the time. Do you think the truth is a much harder concept to, to find or do you even think about truth as a pure concept? Not necessarily online. I think it's going to be one of those things where you've got to identify what you think is the truth. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, it's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car or we could finally get that jacuzzi or I could start taking tuba lessons or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Bruce based off how far you've gone into it. And if you do believe, you know, those surface things that come on the news most of the time, like as long as it doesn't really affect you mentally, it doesn't matter because you don't always know what to believe and that's okay too. And uh, I'm interested, you know, you work in media and comms but you're kind of also a bit wary. That, that seems to be the new norm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was 15, my parents would say, like, never, ever post anything inappropriate online. And it's been so funny. I've always kind of stuck to that because I never – ever wanted to be embarrassed by an employer or my family or anything like that. Um, but the people I know that that have done that is just like so flabbergasting to me because I just don't understand what what they want to get out of showcasing themselves that way. Um, do they need validation? Do they do they need to be noticed? Like what is it that just generation some people are being affected by social media in that regard? Um, from an like you know, adult adults perspective um what what do you see um the next generation looking at social media like i like that you call me an adult adult is that like a graduated adult or something (laughs) i think so it's like a second tier adult like a version 2.0 no Mm. um as an adult adult um i'm very wary i mean i i was i was going to ask you my next question was going to be sort of around apps and news sources and that sort of thing but like for me um the, the podcast has grown almost entirely out of word of mouth. Like we do have um, social presence and whatnot, but I don't do any of it because I don't like it. Um, I enjoy LinkedIn um, because I think a lot of people 
sort of say to me, oh, LinkedIn's just bullshit. You know, why do you like that over all the other platforms? But I actually find that LinkedIn is a space where intentions are really clear, like, and it's not confusing. Like everyone is there to talk about their professional interests or their career interests. And that has a purity to me that's quite nice and refreshing. Whereas on Twitter, I've written heaps of stuff and nobody pays any attention. <laughs> um, and when I interact with people, it's sort of like very stuttered and short and not very interesting to kind of – I read it, but I don't contribute to it. Mm. Um, I'm more of a words person, so Instagram makes no sense to me. I'm, <laughs> I'm not on it. The podcast is on it, uh, which is good for people who like that, I guess. Um, one thing I have discovered that I really like, and this is like a sick, um, enjoyment, like it's like one of my guilty pleasures. I put it alongside dairy milk chocolate as one of my like shameful things. Um, TikTok. So I spend about, <laughs> I limit myself to about 20 minutes a day on it, but I love it. I think it's just, it's so clever. The algorithm is amazing and its ability within, they say within three swipes, it knows what you like. And that is terrifying, but also very enjoyable. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, social for me is complicated. I also, um, you know, I manage a team, um, marketing comms team myself, and I know that that's where people are, but I think it is increasingly a space where you've got to be really conscious about how people are wanting to appear. Mm. Um, and, you know, my wife and I always talk about the fact that why do people only share their proud moments on social media? What about a more honest conversation? Like what's really happening, you know? Yeah. Um, do you ever feel like there's a need to break that fourth wall and just you know, be really raw? Some people do. But then I also find sometimes when people do that, like I respect it, but it can make people uncomfortable. Yeah. I think you can be uncomfortable when people are showcasing too much and they're showing too much negative as well. So I think it the way I see it with my strategic comms hat on, yeah. um, less is more. So yeah. post less about it, get people to ask you questions if they're intrigued, but just, you know, sh- you know, show your, um, you know, pivotal moments. Like, you know, I graduated this, I had a birthday and all that sort of stuff. So people know you're growing and you're doing things. Um, but if they want more detail, I just find, you know, less is more like one or two sentences, like no need to like over exaggerate on social media. Let, let me talk you through the complexity of a real life situation and get your play by play on this, right? So just had a baby. Um, t- podcast listeners know that um, young man called Marlo. He's gorgeous. He's about what would be like two weeks old now or something. So he's getting there. So he's um, he's not an adult adult yet, <laughs> as you would put it. But one day he might be. Um, but you know, for me, a big thing like everyone does this thing on Facebook, and I'm not sure if your generation even uses Facebook. You can comment soon. But um, like everyone does this Facebook post. Oh, he's he's the baby. Mum and Bub are doing great. Here's the weight. He's like it's very kind of cliche kind of thing. And so Louise, my wife's really against that. So we didn't do that. And I thought, I do want people to know that I've had a baby, but I want to find a tasteful way of kind of just putting that out there without making a big kind of grandstanding statement. So I did a little LinkedIn post. Um, I ended up doing a Facebook post that was a little bit different, just basically of a tile with um, the, the birth date, the name, and just, you know, simple stuff. But yeah, for me, it was like quite a confronting experience because I also was conscious that I didn't really want to share the face of the baby too much um, because it's a bit personal maybe. And, you know, a baby cannot consent to showing its face either. Like what if the young man grows up and, you know, there's now a digital footprint of him from when he was two weeks old um, in 2022 being a baby. You know, he might join Philanthropy Australia in 20 years and, you know, who knows, he'll regret that. So this is some of the sort of the complexity. What do you think? 
You're very right. I actually was just reading a news story the other week about how a 16-year-old is suing his parents because he had all these like 10 and under pictures posted of him like on a weekly basis and he just didn't have, he didn't give any consent at the time. And uh, the way you did it is exactly the way I would do it. That's just what I perceive to be correct as well. But I think that it's the, it's that thing of like, if people want to showcase everything, they will showcase everything. And if you don't, I really just don't think you should. And like the people that want to, they want to, and just let them do that because it, it's what they do. They, they want to feel comfortable and connect with everyone on that level. Um, but I think less is more. It's just the smarter way to go about it. And especially with what you went through, I mean, yeah, like the way you've done it, letting everybody know is it's almost a respect thing because if you did have a baby and like no one really knew about it, all of a sudden your friends that you don't really see all the time are like, oh, you had a baby, you didn't even tell me. Why didn't you tell me that? Yeah. So I think the it's way like you've done a, it. It's almost like common courtesy in a way. In a way. And that's why I think milestones are so important sometimes. And yeah, that thing of imagery is, again, the appropriateness, like things that you'll always be proud of. Yeah. So if you would be proud of not showcasing completely the face, it's like, yeah, I made absolutely the right decision back then. Yeah, so it's interesting because it sounds like you have a slightly higher bar for than what we would call the traditional kind of publishability test. So something you're proud of versus something you'd hate to see on the front page of the paper would be like the old way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's happening to this generation in terms of that is that instant, you know, fast pace, like I need things now sort of mentality where else they're not really taking like five or ten minutes to like think about like now, then and in the future. Um, I just think it's that we want this, you know, social media comes at our fingertips so quickly and we're scrolling things in three seconds. It's that fast-paced movement of like they're just doing things instantly without thinking. They're doing before they're thinking. And is that dangerous, that sort of latency, like the really low latency? So, you know, we all have smartphones. When did you get a smartphone? How old were you? I was eight. Thanks, Mum, for my Nokia. <laughs> You're kidding me. So do you, you grew up with Snake and stuff? Uh, no, my, uh, my parents were separated and, um, I just needed one to call mum and dad at different times. Um, but I was quite young and I didn't have a camera or anything. The thing was a brick. Okay. Did it have text messaging? Uh, it did. So a great story for you. This is just take you right back to the day. So I had a Sony Ericsson was my first phone. It was like, do you even know what Ericsson? Have you heard of Ericsson? Yeah, I've okay. heard of them in the so dinosaur not, age. Yeah. It's kind of an extinct technology now. Yeah. They had like a flip phone and stuff and, um, I remember my first phone, I got it when I was 14 or 15 and I was catching public transport to and from school and um, you couldn't, like, text messaging just got invented. <laughs> and, like, you couldn't, um, there was no predictive language or, like, oh. you know how the keys work. Yeah, so yeah. you'd have to, like, um, press the key X number of times to get to a C or a D and then, like, to complete a word would take, like, a minute. <laughs> so I have these wow. great, I have these memories of growing up where literally, before that, um, we would pay for and ring each other. Like I would call my friend's house and if they weren't at home, you could talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's so interesting now, like, you know, to see young people and how responsive they are with everything and something happens and it's like they can put it on Instagram immediately, they can go live on whatever platform, they can TikTok and sometimes I just think like, are we making it too easy for people to not be present in the moment? Yes, we are. And that's why I encourage people to read more because sometimes I feel like when I read and I slow down and really look at all the words and take my time, I'm moving a bit slower because I'm a very fast-paced person too. And I think um, like if I didn't have autocorrect on my phone, I kid you not, you would not get 
one word spelt correctly for me. Garble. It would just be garble. And um, so I think, yeah, the slow paced movement and we just, we are, everything is a bit too instant nowadays. Um, like there's things that I'm like, oh, I wish I could take that back. And I just wish I thought about that for a second more. But um, yeah, it's definitely, especially now that they're so young. I remember I was <laughs> at the salon the other day and the girl next to me had like a much better phone, a much better bag, much better clothes. And I'm telling you, she was 10 years younger. <laughs> I'm like, this is bizarre. Like <laughs> how has she got all these things? And I, I like, no, I don't even have these now, let alone at her age. So I think it's just, again, like they've just got so much more access and resources than then, you know, and that's what happens each generation. Let's move on slightly. Actually, before we do, so what platforms do you use? What do you like to use? That was great. Um, Yeah, I really liked that you touched on all the different ones before. I'm also a big advocate for LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is great. Again, that common agenda. And also because it's professional, you can't really like cut no guardrails, too much. right? Yeah, exactly. So that's what I like about it. And it's I do, like sort of going bowling with like the the barriers in place. You know, like you can't go too wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I do like you know learning from other people. I find that it's a great learning resource. Um, Instagram, I am quite visual. I do like it visually from an aesthetic perspective, um, but I try not to go on that too much because I just don't think it's good for me. I actually don't have TikTok purely because I didn't want another platform or another app at the time. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I know how crazy that's been and I almost feel like I should get one, but I just don't want to learn another platform. And I read so many stories. There's a lot of new platforms that are, like, in the making and coming out. So watch this space, but I just don't think – I honestly have like the time to to manage so many. Like I have a Twitter as well. I actually use Twitter from a professional lens. So um, working in media and comms, like it's very common when you write articles to direct people to your Twitter. Journalism, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my Twitter is professional, even though a lot of people use that socially. So it's like a LinkedIn essentially. Yeah, that's cool. That's really interesting. And what do you see? So what do you want for the future? I mean, it's a hard question to ask and, you know, I hate the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because as I said before, you've already grown up. You've probably grown up a long time ago as is this generation. But um, where do you see yourself? Like do you want to kind of stay in the not-for-profit space? Do you want to be in philanthropy? Um, Do you want to do a mix of things? Is it a portfolio career? Yeah. Do you have your eyes set on a position in particular? I can clearly see my career trajectory taking me towards, you know, being the head of communications or marketing at a non-for-profit organisation. Mm. And I would love that. That would be an amazing career. Um, but I think ambitiously I, I actually do want to be a CEO of a non-for-profit organisation. I love strategic thinking and, and working with others and I'm actually really good at handling stress, um, believe it or not. How, how do you, what's the secret? How uh, do you handle stress? I grew up with um, one of my parents in particular um, was just really good at like any problem that ever came to him. It was just very, he was just very calm about it and reserved because there's just such a bigger picture and everything works itself out. So when people come to me with stressful situations at work, that's just sort of the mentality I have. Um, And I like to make other people feel calm in the process because I know other people are stressed and, you know, bad things going on, but it's kind of just like, everything will work out mentality, like things will be taken care of and I'm going to be a sounding board for you to complain to. So that's just the way I sort of look at it. And I've had many conversations with the CEOs that work at non-for-profit organisations and just being like, what is your job? And they, 90% of the time they say, you know, it's 80% managing other people and 20% strategic thinking. Yeah, that's pretty good. Mm. So you want to do that? 
Absolutely. I think um, I'm working towards that. And in my new role, my direct report is a CEO. So I'm really excited to just pick her brain and learn. And, and what sort of timeframes do you think in, in terms of what you're going to do next? Like I, I'm very much like a six-month to a year person. It's just how I am. It's not that I get sick of things. I just like to reevaluate things regularly to see whether they're still on track and feel right. How do you think in timeframes? Well, the last two years being in lockdown, um, I went through a lot, as I'm sure a lot people, a lot of people did. And I'm really itching to sort of be in my early 20s and scratch that travel and experience bug. I'm very grateful that my career is pretty fine and stable. And if I left for a while and came back, I'd be able to pick up where I left off. So that's sort of my mindset. Like I'm going to love this new role that I'm going into. Um, but. I think next year and the year after that, I'm going to look at like, you know, where can I travel before my 30s um, and learn more about myself? Because I think when I come back from that, um, I'll just be so much, you know, wiser and, and stronger and ambitiously ready to, to tackle new challenges. And when I was a student, when I was 18 and 20, I studied abroad and I interned abroad. So I'm definitely ready to, even if it was a professional opportunity to go abroad again, um, so sorry to all my friends. I'm probably going to leave you <laughs> again. No, you can't. You can't. They'll, they'll, they'll be, well, if you're on many social media platforms, maybe it'll be okay. But yeah. Because they'll be able to see everything you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that's where I'm looking at now. But I do feel really comfortable taking that break and still getting to where I want to be um, because I know whatever I feel like, if I see an opportunity, I'll just I'll definitely just do what I can to make it happen. Where will you go? Um, overseas, yeah. uh, definitely want to do more of, I'm going to Japan at the end of the year. Oh man, you're going to love it. Oh, the efficient and minimal lifestyle and all the sushi. <laughs> I know I'm just going to have a great time. Um, I like that you started with efficient and minimal and then moved to sushi. Yeah. Go the other way. But that's um, but a bit more of Europe and yeah, just to see, see enough. So I feel like I've done a lot. Fantastic. It's very exciting. I mean, Look, the obvious question is, are you growing up and moving through your career too fast? Do you, do you know the pace that you're moving at? Because I don't want to blow smoke up you, um, but you're 24 and you're already going to be reporting to a CEO very shortly, or if not now when this comes out. Um, do you ever – do people tell you to slow down? Yeah, they do. Do you, do you agree that you might consider it or it's not really a factor? I just don't think there's – uh, like a race, you know, I know 24 year olds that, you know, haven't studied or don't really know where they want to be because they did all the travel stuff first. Like I just knew early and the opportunities came, well, I've, I found them early. Um, and I was ready for them at that time. So I think it's just all about, you know, um, growing with yourself. If I feel like I need to stop, I will stop, but I have always felt the need to sort of grow and, and take these opportunities. And I guess the last two years, um, like I mentioned before, like I really built so much of my career in lockdown by myself just sitting at a computer. And now that I've done that, I just feel very grateful because it's very rare that people know really what they want to do and find all these things that just align with them. So I'm, you know, really grateful that that's happened to me and I'm aware that I'm young, um, but I haven't let go of like that life side of me, you know, like I still know that that's there and I still, I still want to be young. Last two questions. They're rapid fire ones. First one is um, ironically, how do you slow down and be like, do you have strategies that you adopt beyond mentality to get you to a place of calm? I'm a big runner. Um, I run every single day just as my form of like meditation and time to myself and that self-care. So I think that's a big help for me. But I also think 
One of the things that's so beautiful about this, you know, work from home remote lifestyle is that you can really just be on when you need to be on and be off when you need to be off. And I find that I'm really good now at at balancing the two or else before I was like, oh my gosh, I need to work all the time. And then when I get home, I need to work some more. And now I'm just kind of like, oh, you know, at 2 p.m. I can go do this. And at 5 p.m. I'll answer those emails. And it's just very like calming for me to be able to live this lifestyle because I don't know how other people feel that wear so many hats, but it is so much better for your, for your mental health, wearing so many hats and doing different things. Yeah. Well, so that was going to be the second question. You kind of segued nicely. So um, how will you know when you're doing too many things or is that not a thing, doing too many things? Like, Because there's a cognitive load to, to switching tasks and roles and hats. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, you always have a priority order. Like for me it's what three hats are the most important usually. Obviously it's my full-time job as first and then the other two that need my highest capacity is second and third. Um, it's just one of those things. It has to be a priority order. And because I work in communications for me, I'm just such a transparent communicator, like all my, you know, bosses and managers, if I ever feel like I'm being stretched or if I need more on my plate, like they'll definitely know about it. Yeah. Um, so I think cause I've seen, um, in the workforce, people don't tell me when they're too stressed and they just fall off or they just leave or, you know, they, they don't do quality work. So I think it's all about communication and just letting them know um, and they'll respect you for that because they want you to be sort of the best version of yourself um, in in the roles that you have. That's, that's really well said. And I think a really important point there about um, like being transparent and being yourself. Like one thing that, that I've sort of taken away from this podcast is wisdom. Lord Mayor Sally Cap was on the pod um, early on in the piece and she said the way she's able to handle so many different responsibilities is that she's herself all the time. So bringing her full self to every role enables her to not have to deal with that cognitive load switching. Yeah. So that authenticity and transparency is a sort of key factor. Yeah, totally. And everyone that's ever worked with me will know, like, yeah, I get things done and and whatever, but I am a crack up. Like I will always be cracking jokes because that's just who I am. Like so I will be that at work and I'll be that at home. And, yeah, the personality doesn't really change too much. Yeah, that's well, very well said. Hey, amazing conversation. I'd love to continue, but uh, we should wrap up. We've got a couple of people peering into the podcast room looking to record next, but um, I'm so glad you could join me. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Um, It's been such a lovely chat. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.